You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. On June 27, 2017, something strange and terrible began to ripple out across the infrastructure of the world. A group of hospitals in Pennsylvania began delaying surgeries and turning away patients. A Cadbury factory in Tasmania stopped churning out chocolates. The pharmaceutical giant Merck ceased manufacturing vaccines for human papillomavirus. Soon, 17 terminals at ports across the globe, all owned by the world's largest shipping firm, Maersk, found themselves paralyzed. Tens of thousands of 18-wheeler trucks carrying shipping containers began to line up outside those ports' gates. Massive ships arrived from journeys across oceans, each carrying hundreds of thousands of tons of cargo, only to find that no one could unload them. Like victims of a global outbreak of some brain-eating bacteria, major components in the intertwined, automated systems of the world seem to have spontaneously forgotten how to function. At the attack's epicenter in Ukraine, the effects of the technological doomsday were more concentrated. ATMs and credit card payment systems inexplicably dropped offline. Mass transit in the country's capital of Kiev was crippled. Government agencies, airports, hospitals, the postal service, even scientists monitoring radioactivity levels at the ruins of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant all watched helplessly as practically every computer in their networks was infected and wiped by a mysterious piece of malicious code. This is what cyber war looks like, an invisible force capable of striking out from an unknown origin to sabotage on a massive scale the technologies that underpin civilization. Andy Greenberg is a reporter for Wired. His first book was This Machine Kills Secrets. His new book is Sandworm. A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. Thank you for joining me, Andy. I'm glad to be here. In the opening scene of this book is like a piece of science fiction in a way. They're in a black room. They're working on malicious code. This book strikes me as the perfect example of something William Gibson once said, which is, the future has arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. And that sometimes becomes quite unfortunate if you're Ukraine. <laughs> For a very long time, cyber war stories were about what could happen. You know, what if hackers caused blackouts? What if hackers took down banks? What if they um, made ATMs not function? What if they took over you know, shipping conglomerates and broke the global shipping industry? Um, and all of that was kind of like this scaremongery um, predictive future story, like kind of like science fiction, but, you know, with real lessons. But now all of those things have happened. And in a way, um, what's weird is that the world hasn't taken notice. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the stories I'm telling here feel untold or undertold. And that's because, as you say, cyber war is not evenly distributed. It's, it largely happened in Ukraine. And then when it did eventually spill out to the rest of the world. That is the story of this book, how the Ukrainian cyber war eventually spilled out into the worst cyber attack in history and cost $10 billion in damage around the world. It even even then was uh, kind of, um, it it only hit some victims and not others and was in some way swept under the rug by many of those victims. So 
cyber war has happened. There, we have had the kind of cataclysmic, terrible digital disaster take place. And because we didn't all feel it, because it was something that occurred in our kind of digital world instead of the physical one, the story hasn't been told, I think, uh, to the degree that, you know, I want to tell it. This is a perfect example of what uh, Stanislaw Lemma, science fiction writer from Poland, called the Pericolypse, which is an apocalypse that has already come to pass, but went unnoticed in the general haste. That is a wonderful word for it. Um, I don't know what the root of, of like, the, of the prefix of that is. Oh, but... uh, perigee and apogee. Oh, I see. First, closest point in that orbit. I'm a big Stanislav Lem fan, but I did not know that one. Now, um, one of the things that struck me as I read this book, and as even as I listened to you talk, you talked about cyber war and and battles, but it struck me about this book the real power of this, and it's not, this sounds like something that maybe Sun Tzu might have said, and, and certainly would now, which is that the easiest battle to win is the one that your antagonist does not know it's taking place and will not admit it's taking place. Well, I don't know if that is exactly what happened here. Like, um, that describes traditional hacking and traditional cyber espionage mm -hmm. where, you know, the very best hackers, probably the NSA in particular, when they're uh, inside of somebody's network, um, it, it's very unlikely they'll ever know they're so good. Uh, and that, you know, the, the evidence of how good they are is that we don't hear about those attacks except in a, a few very rare occasions like you know the, uh, the leaks of Edward Snowden, for instance. But um, that's not how Sandworm operates. That's not how the hackers at the center of this book function. They, they leave a trail of destruction behind them, and you know when you've been hit. In fact, you are often feeling a lot of pain. You know, uh, I think that that's one of the... the most frightening points of this book is the ability to not just steal data or manipulate data, but to use, to access the infrastructure and make physical changes in the world. And this is a translation from one sort of physics to another. Physics is important in this book. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of about uh, cyber physical attacks, as we say in like the nerdiest way of expressing this, that this is about cyber attacks they reach into the physical world, in some cases indirectly by just destroying so many computers that the physical infrastructure of a company or government agency or um, other sort of institution is shut down. But in other cases, uh, these are direct cyber physical attacks which are very, very rare, where a piece of malicious software directly sends commands to physical equipment de designed to break it or disrupt it or even destroy it. And that that has happened. Sandworm tried to do that too, tried to, tried to actually destroy physical equipment like transformers and lines, it seems, inside of a, of a uh, Ukrainian electrical grid facility at one point, um, and almost succeeded. And that was the, the only the second attempt we saw in history to do that, the first being actually the NSA and Israeli collaboration on Stuxnet, this kind of virtuosic piece of malware in, in 2009, 2010 that was designed to, and did, destroy Iranian centrifuges in this underground weapons facility. Well, this uh, journey of yours, and this is really um, interesting, the way this book is structured, is it, it opens up and shows us a mysterious world, and gradually we've realized that you are the detective, and you are looking for the heart of a mystery. And I think the, 
I'd like you to talk about just using some of the um, plot points and the prose effects of detective fiction, but using that to reflect the real world in a way that makes the real world extremely terrifying, intense place to, hear, to read about. I don't think that I'm actually the, the central detective character of this story, though I'm flattered you might think so. But it is a detective story, and I'm really following a, a, a group of characters, people. I mean, it, I don't want to just call them characters, but I do try to tell like a, a, a story that is as good as fiction. So you know, we, you, we call them characters, but they are the detectives. The thing about writing a story like this is that I wasn't sure, and ultimately I wasn't sure I would be able to ever talk to Sandworm, the hackers who are at the core of the story. And in fact, it turns out that they are Russian military intelligence hackers and are impossible to talk to. I mean, they would be killed if they spoke to me. So I, I figured out pretty quickly that I was not going to talk to the to essentially the kind of antagonist in this story. So I had to find protagonists who are the the kind of researchers hunting hunting sandworm and following its tracks and trying to figure out what it's doing and trying to raise the alarm that what sandworm these these Russian state-sponsored hackers were doing in Ukraine um, needed to be recognized as unprecedented and dangerous needed to be called out and responded to with sanctions or indictments, something to hold them accountable and prevent what they were doing in Ukraine from spreading to the rest of the world. And ultimately, they are, they are ignored. And in this cyber war does spread to the rest of the world. But yeah, that's, that's how I try to tell the story, is, is as this kind of detective story that becomes a disaster story after the detectives are ignored. And um, they, these Cassandras are, you know, uh, neglected and, and Sandworm becomes the monster that they all knew it to be. You have some, some great uh, characters, people that you met. Uh, John Holtquist and I particularly liked Rob Lee, who was, was an interesting character. So talk about uh, finding these people. I mean, these people, I would guess, are maybe not so easy to find, are they? Well, they are, they're not as hard as um, the people in, in the actual intelligence world, but they are essentially the, the next best thing. Rob Lee and John Holquist are both people who work in the private cybersecurity industry. Both of them do a lot of the same things that the NSA uh, or other intelligence agencies do, uh, basically hunting hackers, building you know profiles of different dangerous hacker groups out there. But unlike you know the people in the world with security clearances and classified data and stuff, they are willing to talk about it um, with people like me. You know, so John Holquist at one point was working at this little company outside of DC that was the first to discover Sandworm's activities when it just seemed that they were this group of Russian hackers doing kind of traditional espionage. And he and his little company called iSight Partners pulled on this thread starting way back in 2014 until it became clear that this was not just spying, this was preparation for attack. That in fact, Sandworm, these hackers, and he called them Sandworm, by the way, because in their code there were little references to the sci-fi novel Dune. Um, and uh, in some ways, like uh, it's a really appropriate name because Sandworm, to me, does represent this sort of massive monster, like in Dune, that lives beneath the surface and occasionally rises to do terrible, destructive things. But anyway, I say partners and John Holquist, they pulled on this, these threads and kind of these little forensic clues until the, it became clear that Sandworm was not just spying, but, but building the capabilities and, and 
preparing, doing reconnaissance for attack, that they had in fact also penetrated the U.S. power grid and planted the first seeds of, of a, an attack there. And that was back in 2014, a year before they would actually cause the first ever blackout triggered by hackers in Ukraine. So once I knew that backstory, uh, once I learned that by talking to John, I could see that you know when I first started getting onto this story that there was this immediate analogy to American national security. And I started talking to John about Sandworm before um, ultimately this kind of climactic cyber attack called NotPetya in 2017, where what Sandworm was doing in Ukraine did suddenly balloon out and uh, cause all this collateral damage across the, the entire globe. So John Hulquist as this kind of first detective following Sandworm was the perfect Cassandra character, but so was Rob Lee, as you mentioned, a former NSA analyst who had led a team at the NSA um, that was hunting hackers who pose a threat to critical infrastructure. So he is the exact perfect person to be tracking Sandworm and is you know this expert in um, power grid security and you know, when I first started talking to Rob, he had done this analysis of that 2015 first ever hacker blackout in Ukraine. When I first started talking to him about the story of that attack, he told me about how the news of that attack had actually hit not only on Christmas Day for him, but his wedding day, and how in the midst of his Christmas Day wedding, he had to just walk away in the middle of his own wedding reception to go start figuring out who had done this, whether it was real, um, this this kind of ultimate quintessential act of cyber war that he'd been waiting his entire career to see took place with truly perfectly terrible timing for him and, and his poor wife. I mean, um, anyway, so when I heard that, I was like, well, of course, Rob has got to be a big character in this story as well. And he ultimately tries to sound the alarm about Sandworm's attacks and is, is also a huge part of the story. You know, uh, you talked about how they penetrate our power grids, and you go back, uh, you wind the, the clock back a bit and uh, describe what to me here in California, where we've just had a number of wildfires set by electrical utilities, things blowing up in the middle of the forest. You describe uh, an attack that we did just to, as a kind of proof of concept, uh, the Aurora. So tell us about Aurora. The Aurora attack was which was really this kind of demonstration of, of cyber-physical capabilities, it, it came even before Stuxnet. Mm -hmm. And it was this thing that the Idaho National Lab did in 2007, where they wanted to prove to electric utilities, to policymakers, that it was possible to destroy, not simply turn off the power, but destroy electrical utility equipment with a piece of malicious code. So with this Mike Asante, this kind of really admirable and brilliant a uh, guy who crossed over between electric electric utility knowledge and cybersecurity and, and who tragically passed away earlier this year. He developed this attack. He, they actually obtained a diesel generator, you know, the, the size of a school bus, like an actual um, industrial-sized um, generator that they then uh, used as their poor guinea pig and um, using just a kind of small snippet of code were able to hack the, the protective relay that governs, um, that actually monitors uh, a, a piece of equipment like that for uh, unsafe conditions. A protective relay is supposed to see if um, something unsafe is happening, like 
a generator is getting out of sync with the rest of the grid or if a power line has too much current on it or a transformer. Um, but in this case, they loaded um, this malicious code into a protective relay so that it, instead of protecting the, ge the generator, it actually sabotaged it. This malicious code inside of the protective relay would basically trick the generator into thinking it was out of sync and then yank it back into sync with the rest of the grid, uh, which did really catastrophic physical damage to this generator. With, I think, a 140 kilobyte file, we're able to blow up this massive piece of you know, steel uh, and spinning components. And it was this kind of, I think almost like a Los Alamos moment where these researchers, these scientists, kind of looked at what they'd done with, with awe and a little bit of trepidation, like what have, we, what have we demonstrated here and what does this mean for the future? And then almost exactly 10 years later, you know, Mike Asante watched an attack that Sandworm did in Ukraine and saw that, in fact, they had even tried to hack the protective relays, just as he had done. And, uh, you know, these are kind of like bookends 10 years apart where he saw the future that he had warned about come to pass, or almost come to pass. I think the actual successful destructive attack that he had warned us about you know, still lays just beyond the horizon, but it is almost here. I mean, we saw these hackers try to do it and just barely fail. Strikes me that uh, given that hackers, we know the Russians are in our power grid, um, we know that our power grid can cause tremendous wildfires. It, it strikes me that it would be possible to cause a wildfire by blowing up a single transformer in the, in the right place at the right time and cause tremendous damage, millions of dollars of damage, and never even necessarily, it would be tough to prove what had happened. Yeah, I, you know, I don't live in California, so I don't think as much as I should about th these risks of power grids. I'm thinking about, you know, could hackers... In, in Ukraine, they were almost just demonstrating their capabilities. They turned off the power for a matter of hours in mm -hmm. each case. Um, but Although in the second case, it seemed like they were trying to blow up something, blow up a transformer perhaps, and cause a much, much longer blackout. Uh, but that's what I'm thinking about more is like, you know, what would it look like when hackers truly do succeed at causing weeks or a month of an outage in a city. Uh, you know, and not only that, but they stick around. And as you try to respond and bring the power back online, they're still there, you know, hiding out in parts of your network uh, and tearing, your, tearing down the, the grid again as you try to bring it online. You know, we talk in the cybersecurity industry about advanced persistent threats as this kind of, it's almost like a euphemism for the most sophisticated state-sponsored hackers. But you know what happens when this advanced persistent threat is sitting in the piece of infrastructure that your whole society depends on and just tearing it down again and again? I mean, that is a kind of terrible dystopian nightmare that I, I think is still ahead of us. But I just want, I want to be clear, though, too, that while this book is about bad things that could happen, about the trend lines from bad things that have already happened to what could happen next. It is not a book about, you know, could it happen here and what would it look like? It is really about what did happen here. It's a story about how this cyber war in Ukraine did. We, you know, we, we ignored it for too long and, until it was too late and it hit us and did terribly destructive things 
in the United States and Europe and the, the West as a whole, and in fact, the, the whole world. That, that scene that you, you talk about, the, the episode of, of the Ukrainian strike, is, I think, really quite frightening. I mean, and do you mean the, but do you mean the NotPetya attack? The NotPetya attack, yeah. yeah. Right. NotPetya was this, this kind of climactic cyber attack in but this. There were, there were some before, weren't there? Right. I mean, so, you know, we were talking a second ago about the attacks on the power grids, and, mm-hmm. and those were kind of the early, kind of early climaxes in the, in the waves and waves of attacks that Sandworm and Russia uh, as a whole have carried out against Ukraine. So in 2014, Ukraine had this pro-Western revolution. Russia invaded, and that invasion was accompanied by cyber attacks on every part of Ukrainian society, the, you know, the d- designed to destroy all the computers inside of a media company, for instance, or a government agency, or uh, an airport. Um, but then they culminated it first in, in that blackout in 2015, then there was a second wave in 2016 that, that, that ended with a, another blackout, this time in the capital of Kiev. Um, so you know, there were these earlier attacks in Ukraine, and my, my detectives like Rob Lee and, and John Hulquist and Ukrainians too, we're pointing to this and saying, you know, pay attention to what's happening here. Russia is using Ukraine as not just a punching bag, but a, a, a test lab for cyber war. And what, what they're doing here, they will sooner or later do to the rest of the world. It's your problem too, out, you know, you in the West. Um, and that is, that is exactly what happened in, in June of 2017, this piece of malware, a worm, uh, an infectious piece of malware that automatically spreads from computer to computer called NotPetya um, hit in Ukraine and immediately spread beyond Ukraine's borders. It did terrible damage to Ukraine. It, it kind of carpet-bombed the country's entire national internet and just took down hundreds of Ukrainian companies and every government agency practically. But it also spread within hours beyond Ukraine's borders to hit this list of multinational companies like Maersk, the world's largest shipping firm, Merck uh, in New Jersey, the pharma- pharma- Merck, the pharmaceutical company, FedEx, uh, Rankin Benkiser, which makes uh, Durex condoms, and Mondelez, which owns Cadbury and Nabisco. I mean, this long list of companies, all of which had the, the misfortune of doing business in Ukraine. And in fact, using this one piece of Ukrainian accounting software that the hackers hijacked as the vehicle for their attack. All of these companies, actually all the ones I named, uh, lost hundreds of millions of dollars to NotPetya. And if you compare that to, say, like, I don't know, like a cyber attack, like the ransomware attacks that have hit uh, Baltimore or Atlanta, those cost some, you know, 10 or $20 million. Each of these companies alone had 300 or 400 or $870 million of damages totaling to $10 billion of damage across the globe. I mean, the, the scale of digital destruction is just uh, kind of mind-boggling. And the speed with which this happened is also just amazing. You write, at one point, you talk about uh, a, a network where the computers, I, what, a thousand computers in 90 seconds or something? It's just, you just, it's amazing. Right, so, the, so NotPetya, this piece of malware, and it was called NotPetya. I know that's a weird name, but it, it was called NotPetya because it, was, it initially looked like ransomware, where your screen you know, shows this message. Your computer is encrypted, and the screen shows a message that says you have to pay $300 in Bitcoin to decrypt your computer. 
And it looked like this piece of ransomware called Petya, but it became clear very quickly that you couldn't pay any amount of money to have your computer decrypted. In fact, it was just essentially destroyed, and that's why they called it not Petya. The, the ransomware was just a cover story. This was a destructive worm that was pretending to be a, a criminal kind of for-profit worm. But as you were getting at, it spread um, not just with this U Ukrainian accounting software updates hijacking technique, but also with a stolen NSA hacking tool and this kind of very clever password stealing tool that once it, was, it had a foothold on a computer, it could kind of steal all the passwords out of the computer's memory and use those to jump to other machines on the network. That's so, uh, Mimikatz, which was developed by a, a, a researcher. Right, this French researcher um, kind of very innocently built this password stealing tool as a demonstration, went to a security conference to present it in Russia and found actually a a, a Russian man, you know, in his hotel room on with his fingers on the French researcher's keyboard, apparently trying to steal this thing. And and eventually the French researcher, almost just part out of fear, released the tool publicly, as you do sometimes with hacking tools as a demonstration to try to get something fixed. And instead it became this kind of, um, one, one person described it to me as the kind of AK-47 of hacking. It's just used everywhere in all of these state-sponsored hacking intrusions to kind of steal passwords and move inside of a network. And that was integrated automatically into this NotPetya worm. So with that, plus the stolen NSA hacking tool called Eternal Blue, NotPetya spread just explosively, like within seconds, sometimes saturating thousands and thousands of computers inside of a network, taking down really the entire digital footprint of one company after another that just had like, uh, you know, in some cases, Maersk, Maersk, for instance, had just one computer running this Ukrainian accounting software in one office in Odessa on the, on the Black Sea coast of Ukraine. That was enough for NotPetya to take hold and take down their entire global network. 45,000 computers and 7,000 servers. And, you know, that's not just a, an IT problem. You know, I, I describe... It's the amazing. Book <laughs> it's scary. What this, what this looked like for Maersk. And for... For the people inside of Maersk, it, it first looked like, you know, one, one Maersk IT administrator described to me, looking up from, he, you know, he described to me looking at his screen go dark and not knowing why, and looking up around the room and watching just a wave of black screens go around the room, just black, 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 as every screen in the company went black and then showed this ransomware message. And then, you know, soon... Uh, people are running down hallways and screaming for their their coworkers to unplug computers as quickly as possible, jumping over the turnstiles, like the physical security um, turnstiles in the headquarters. This is all taking place in the Copenhagen headquarters of Maersk in, um, in Denmark, uh, because even the those like physical things, like the the security turnstiles, were broken by this immediately. And they're trying to spread the word to the rest of the building. They're running into the middle of meetings and telling everyone to turn off their computers. But it's too late, and their global network is destroyed. And that means that at that same moment, in, for instance, Newark, New Jersey, you know, this is like one terminal of 76 that Maersk owns around the world and ports around the world. Cargo ships start to arrive the size of the Empire State Building with another Empire State Building worth of containers stacked on top of them, and nobody at Maersk knows what is on these ships. They can't even like do the inventory or start to do this in, in 
insanely complicated game of unloading those ships onto their docks. Uh, and then meanwhile, the gates to those terminals are also paralyzed. They have this voice over IP system where they usually, a truck, a container truck pulls up and um, they're told you know, where to kind of check in, where to drop off or pick up a container. But in this case, the, the gate was dead and it turned into this choke point where thousands of trucks were lining up outside that New Jersey terminal and all of the drivers have no idea what's going on. They have to figure out where else to send their stuff. I mean, in some cases it's perishable or, or it's part of some just-in-time supply chain. And Maersk can't even tell them what's going on. They can't even send them an email. The, 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 the chaos was just kind of hard to even capture. But this wasn't, ju this wasn't just happening at this Newark terminal. It was happening at 17 of Maersk's terminals around the world, from Los Angeles to Newark to Spain to the Netherlands to India. I mean, this was a truly global catastrophe. And that's just Maersk. I mean, that's just one of these companies. Maersk didn't even, Maersk lost $300 million to NotPetya, but uh, you know, FedEx lost $400 million, and Merck lost $870 million. They had to borrow their own HPV vaccine from the Center for Disease Control because their uh, manufacturing was disrupted. And of course, or I shouldn't say of course, because I feel like this story hasn't been told enough. NotPetya hit American hospitals too and took down all of these. This is a really interesting, it's terrifying and interesting because what you're talking about and what you've researched and discovered is this uh, a chain of chance where one thing knocks over another, knocks over another, or knocks over another, and you never know what aspect of something is going to affect something else. That's right. I mean, the, with um, all these hospitals that I was just starting to describe, they were not themselves, for the most part, infected with NotPetya. A couple of American hospitals were and had all of their computers destroyed. But much more common was that um, they were affected by the, the outage at this one company called Nuance, that makes speech-to-text transcription software. And hospitals use this to, to read in changes, um, sometimes over the phone even, to make changes to medical records. And doctors will use this Nuance software. And Nuance lost about $92 million to NotPetya. It was terribly hit by this themselves. But and more, more importantly, in some sense, all of these hospitals that use their software across the country had this kind of silent failure where doctors were trying to read in changes to medical records and they were being lost because the software was down. And the result was that in many cases, patients, I mean, I, I talked to one IT administrator at a major hospital who was, was dealing with cases where child patients were due to be transferred or, or to have some critical surgery and they couldn't figure out if the child had, had the test that they needed to be prepped for that, that procedure. And uh, that was because of Nuance's downtime, and they had to search through all of these raw audio files that had not been transcribed, that had not been put in medical records to find the ones to clear these patients for surgery. And they, they did it just in time, but it kept happening like for this one administrator four times in a week with four different kids. And I talked to one hospital network that had millions of lost changes to medical records, and this likely hit somewhere between dozens and hundreds of American hospitals, that same uh, company described to me being on a conference call to deal with the nuance outage that had hundreds of participants. So it's really hard to be sure of the scale of this, but it seems very 
possible or at least very difficult to disprove the notion that NotPetya may have truly harmed someone's health out there with this disruption of our of our medical system at that scale. So in a sense, there very likely might have been human casualties as a result of the, the accidental spillover of this software. There, is, is it clear whether or not the people who infected the Ukraine intended for it to go as far as it did? Well, I don't want to say that there have been human casualties because I right. haven't been able to prove it. But I, it just, you know, it's, when you look at that kind of disruption of, of hospitals at that scale, it's, you know, it's, it's just hard to say the opposite either. That, sure. Uh, and we've never seen a cyber attack that, that kills someone as far as we know. But it may have been that NotPetya was that cyber attack and that it, this fatality or, you know, at the very least harm to someone's health was hidden just by the scale of the attack itself. But you were asking about, you know, was this intended to spread beyond Ukraine? And that is still a big mystery about NotPetya and what sandworm these hackers intended by releasing this terribly virulent and destructive worm. And I've come to the conclusion, I think, that it was an accident that Sandworm intended just to kind of take down the entire IT footprint of, of Ukraine, their adversary in this war. But it's, it's almost letting them off the hook to say that it was just collateral damage that they did to the rest of the world because they could have limited the blast radius of this attack to some degree if they tried. Because they had access to that accounting software, they could have looked at the accounting software at the tax ID numbers of these victims to figure out who exactly each victim was to target their attack, to, to make sure that they didn't do any destruction outside of Ukraine. I mean, that's, that would still have been terrible, but it would have been a different degree of terrible. I mean, I would never say that it wouldn't be significant if, if Russia had just destroyed the IT networks of 300 Ukrainian companies and 22 banks and four hospitals, as far as, you know, as, far as I can count, many more likely. Um, but, but it would not have been a global attack at the same scale. And in fact, NotPetya hit Russia too, which is, I think, the, the best evidence that that spread was unintentional, but you know, also just insanely brazen and reckless and sloppy. Reckless seems to be an important word here because uh, the idea of these attacks is not necessarily to cause the damage or to stop things, although that's that's important. The idea is to undermine our sense of security and safety and continuity, really. As we were just saying, I don't know if if Sandworm intended NotPetya to hit the West or had mm -hmm. any intention of, of having those kinds of effects on us, but their attacks in Ukraine do seem to be in part a kind of terrorism. I think you can still call it cyber war because it's nation-state-sponsored. It's in the midst of a physical invasion, uh, and it has these terrible disruptive effects, sometimes from one government on another, which is, you know, all of those things are, I think, what you, the criteria for calling something real cyber war. And I think this is, in some ways, the first true full-scale cyber war. But it also is a kind of terroristic mentality of trying to scare Ukrainians to make them lose confidence in their government's ability to protect them. And not just in the east of the country or in Crimea, the peninsula in the south of the country that was seized by Russia. The east of the country has this ongoing you know, physical ground war that is really grueling and, and has killed 13,000 Ukrainians. But with, with this, these cyber war techniques, they project their power well 
beyond that front into the capital of the country, into the west of Ukraine, uh, and I think are kind of showing Ukrainians that none of them are truly safe. They're trying to make Ukraine at the same time look like a kind of failed state to drive out investments. And Napetia was, you know, uh, it seemed like perhaps it was designed to do that too, to show like if, if you even do business in Ukraine and use this Ukrainian accounting software that you kind of need to have to file taxes in the country, then you're going to be in our sights as well. One of the things that I thought you did really well was to go into the kind of, um, I guess, digital forensics of, of how we figure out who's responsible for this. And one of the things that goes into this creation of any of these things are layers and layers of false flags. So, so talk about that, especially the way some of these people like would put in you know, two to three layers of, of uh, misdirection. Right. Well, you know, over time, I think Sandworm and the book is is in part, as you as you were saying, about how these detectives, the, my sort of researcher characters, piece together the fingerprints of these attacks to show that they were all tied to one insanely dangerous group of hackers, Sandworm. But Sandworm, over time, started to make that more difficult. In the very first kind of campaign that Eyesight Partners and John Hulquist discovered, Sandworm was so sloppy that they left uh, open this server. Uh, that had a how-to file for how to use one of their pieces of malware that was written in Russian, which was a pretty good giveaway right from the beginning that this was at least a Russian-speaking group. We would later you know, find more evidence that they are a Russian state-sponsored group working for this military intelligence agency, the GRU. But uh, Sandworm did start to cover its tracks better. And by the end of the book, after NotPetya, there is another attack that I chronicle here and try to tell in, in a new level of detail that hit the 2018 Winter Olympics in Korea. And uh, in that attack, what was so remarkable about it, in part, it, you know, it, it did take down the entire IT backend of those Olympics in the middle of the opening ceremony, just as it was be beginning, actually, and required the, these poor IT administrators for the Olympics to try to rebuild their entire network before the actual games began at 8 a.m. the next day. And they just barely were able to do that. And it was a truly heroic and traumatic effort for them. But the other remarkable thing about that attack was that it included, as you said, these false flags, that there were Russian fingerprints, like kind of sandworm-looking fingerprints in that attack. But then there were other snippets of code that matched North Korean attacks that we'd seen before, and others that even matched China. So it was this kind of confusion bomb, uh, or like a kind of smoke bomb thrown into the path of the detectives tracking Sandworm to just make them almost feel like they couldn't come to a conclusion at all about who was responsible for this. And it was only due to some pretty brilliant forensic work that some analysts that I spoke to at, ultimately at this company, FireEye, were able to find the real fingerprints underneath these layers of false fingerprints and connect them to kind of incontrovertible evidence that this was Russia, this was the GRU that had done this. This was almost certainly, well, very likely Sandworm again with just now, you know, on top of having done the most disruptive attacks in history again and again, they had tried to do this most deceptive attack we'd ever seen too. And it's a troubling idea because it means that, you know, that deception is evolving as well. And the next time that sandworm hits, we may not initially even recognize them. We may 
you know, we may think that it's someone else because they're in disguise. One of the things that becomes important in in the outer world is is the history of the Soviet espionage agencies. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, that why that had to be so well documented. I mean, I mean, once I had learned that Sandworm was working in the service of the GRU, that this is probably a group of hackers within the GRU, this Russian that is working likely within the GRU, that these are hackers inside of this uh, Russian military intelligence agency. I wanted to, you know, I, I couldn't interview them. It's hard to even interview people who work at the NSA, not to mention the Russian equivalent, which is like so much more dangerous and, and destructive and that, um, you know, assassinates people who defect, like Sergei Skripal. He, w he was a GRU defector who GRU agents tried to kill with a chemical weapon. So I knew I wasn't going to, you know, almost certainly would not get an interview with any of these GRU agents. So I, tr I was trying to build a kind of psychological profile around Sandworm. I, I read every GRU defector's book that I could find to learn the history of this agency and to try to get inside of the head of a kind of typical GRU agent. But there have been no, there have been no uh, GRU hacker defectors. These were you know, decades old books for the most part. And so then I, I talked to kind of Russia analysts who had, unlike me, been you know, able to interview GRU defectors who are you know, unnamed and I will never know who they are, and who, who had some sense of, of how the GRU works internally and its culture, which seems to be, as I was getting at with Natpetya, just this almost kind of insanely macho cowboy uh, appetite for risk that you you just kind of go out and do the most destructive and dangerous thing you can think of every day. You don't think about the strategic consequences. You just kind of try to impress your boss with um, your your brazenness. And I think that that you know that 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 word brazen has been used for the GRU um, so many times because we just see them kind of just trying to outdo themselves constantly with first you know what they did in Ukraine. They tried to spoof the election results in Ukraine. Then they meddled in our election. They've caused the first ever blackouts. They released NotPetya. They attacked the 2018 Winter Olympics. These things that, in many cases, don't even make much sense strategically, but almost just seem like them showing off and using the capability just because they, they have it. They're not of the mind to just sit on a weapon that they have. They want to use it. You know, uh, you also point out, too, that the idea of attributing uh, these attacks and the software to a single group is kind of, it might be very misleading in that this group might be organized in the way a business would be organized. There's people who develop the, the software or, and develop the transport level of the software, develop the you know effective capabilities of the software, and develop, terrifyingly enough, remote consoles for Siemens and other industrial uh, operating systems that allow them to turn the power on and off, even here in America. But that might not. There might be somebody who's just dedicated to that and never has any idea of what happens to it afterwards. Or right, not right. Influence the, the the forensics that I'm following from these attacks. Sometimes they are like logs from the network of a victim, and I shouldn't say I because it's really I'm always talking to security researchers who have done this. The, the you know analysis here, and I am just learning it from them. But sometimes it's it's 
from inside of the network of a victim. Sometimes it's just the malware that the hackers used, and you're finding connections between this piece of malware and another one, sort of like you know uh, the same weapon showing up at different crime scenes. And sometimes that's a secret weapon, so you know that that you know nobody else knew about it. It had to be this one group or you know one perpetrator. Uh, so that's that's in part how you tie these attacks together. And then occasionally, an intelligence agency like the NSA or GCHQ in England um, or others around the world will just come out and say, this attack, we will say, was carried out by the GRU or you know by the Russian military. And then once you know that, you can sort of connect all of your forensic web. You can hang it on that one confirmation and say, I see. So I, I attributed all of this to one group. That group is now tied to the GRU. So all of these attacks seem to be GRU attacks like um, Sandworm is within the GRU. But as you were getting at, it can still be quite difficult to determine, is Sandworm, this thing that I'm tracking, are they the hackers who have their hands on the keyboard at the time of the attack? Or are they perhaps the hackers who are developing the cyber weapons, the, the tools that the hands on the keyboard hackers are using? Because if you're looking at links between uh, in the code, you might actually be looking at the at the programming team that's making the tools, not the guys who are using the tools. And in fact, there are probably parts of the GRU that are devoted to making the tools, to using the tools, to building the infrastructure that sits behind all of it. And all of that is kind of mixed together. And I did my best to kind of determine what Sandworm was. You know, Some people believe almost that it is more likely to be the development side, that it's almost like the weapons shop for the GRU's hackers, but others do believe that it's the group that has its hands on the keyboard. Some people even believe that Sandworm is this thing that sits outside of the GRU, uh, which I, I don't know, I'm not sure about that, but, it's, but, I, but I've heard this theory that it sits outside the GRU, that it's a kind of destructive group that's brought in to do the heavy lifting for multiple agencies, the FSB too perhaps, when they need to do destructive attacks. But I haven't seen, uh, I, heard, I heard that theory from just one company. I, haven't seen evidence for it elsewhere. But it is this kind of, there are still lingering questions about exactly what Sandworm is. To me, it does seem clear, though, that it works in the service of the GRU. Uh, in fact, I think the best theory I've got is that it is this one unit of the GRU. Uh, 7442? 7445, to spoil the ending yeah. for all of your listeners. But um, that would mean that we know, you know, some of the names and faces ultimately. You know, we get to that kind of conclusion. I get to that conclusion, and you know, by the end of the book, and we know where they're working from too. And I, you know, I'm able to go to that building and stand outside the building of these hackers. I think you know they may have been inside, who I've been tracking at that point for more than two years. Now, you spend a lot more time in Ukraine in the past few years than most of us. Um, Ukraine is very much in the news today. <laughs> and I think it's interesting to see just this, this book just hovers in the background like a collection of weapons <laughs> that is all pointed at all of us. But right now we're just seeing, you know, the, the ship, we saw some of the shots land in the U Ukraine. Um, but we also know too that some these faces that that have been made available to us, some of them were, were from the Mueller report, election hacking in our United States. Uh, so, uh, and I think that is pretty disturbing because it seems to me 
on one hand, you might want to fight a war where you get out there and turn the lights off and turn them back on and turn them back off and, and scare the heck out of people. But you could also just fight a war without anybody noticing by tweezing a few numbers on election servers. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that you know, the next big moment to watch, of course, is the 2020 election. The 2020 Olympics, I think, are another thing that is probably in the sights of the GRU. They hacked the last Olympics. They also stole and leaked a lot of uh, secret files to try to discredit the Olympics in 2018 when they were banned mm-hmm. for doping, of course. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I you know the story of this book, you know, and, and you you were getting at this like Ukraine is back in the news. It it is this kind of nation-sized political football uh, that just keeps being kicked around by East and Wests alike. And in this case, you know, it's it's all about this Zelensky conversation and. Trump withholding military aid, which I think is, of course, terrible, and uh, the quid pro quo that he was asking for. But, but Ukraine has been caught in this kind of crossfire for its entire history. It is this terrible victim of its own geography that it's, you know, it is between Asia and Europe. It's caught between East and West. It's been invaded by the Mongols and the Turks and the Tatars and then, you know, later the Nazis and then the Soviets and had all of these sort of tragic moments in its history where it was this kind of battleground between different civilizations. And we in the West were lucky enough that we could just ignore all of that and watch Ukraine suffer, um, watch it, its people be starved to death in the Holodomor in the 30s, the Soviets' man-made famine, and then massacred in the Holocaust in, in the middle of World War II. And we treated it as this faraway foreign conflict that wasn't our problem. And then when the first ever true cyber war broke out there, we treated it the same way, and we treated it as a kind of remote, if anything, a kind of foreign case study you know, to watch from afar. But the thing is that this, this country that is this victim of its geography is now being invaded in a realm where geography plays by different rules. We need to learn a whole new set of physics because normally when you declare war on a country, you have to move a lot of people there or fly some hardware over it or aim some hardware at it or, you know, it's visible. It happens in the real world and it happens pretty slowly, even if it's, a, you know, a missile that takes 20 minutes to get from one place to the other. Uh, the physics in the digital universe are really not comprehensible by us. That's right. So we thought we were playing by the old rules as we watched Ukraine be tormented by Russia you know, digitally in this cyber war. And we in the West did not realize that the rules, the physics had changed, that a cyber attack that hits Ukraine can spread out immediately to hit all of us too. That we are all uh, you know, in the shadow of the adversary the way that Ukraine has been for its entire history, that, that we uh, we can't ignore these foreign conflicts anymore, that we do so at our own peril. I mean, that is the the big message of the book. Uh, but it also is about, you know, it's not just about Russia. It's about the ways that cyber war will redefine the rules of conflict in the hands of every adversary. And that includes North Korea and Iran, who have done smaller scale but equally destructive things. And, and also... Uh, the United States. Exactly. You point out that one of the reasons that we didn't uh, note any of these crossing of red lines that the Russians made um, when they 
attacked Ukraine was because perhaps we wanted to be able to make those same things without being called out either. Right. I mean, I did these sort of exit interviews with the top cyber officials at uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administration, two administrations that both watched this cyber war escalate in Ukraine without doing anything. And I was trying to kind of ask them, why why didn't you act? Like, why didn't you call out Sandworm earlier You know, when the first blackout happened and say, it's not okay for state-sponsored hackers to turn off the power to any civilians anywhere in the world. You know, no matter no matter if they're in a war or not, no matter if they're if the victims are part of NATO or not, the U.S. should have should have at least said something. Just said, you know, publicly, it's not okay for whoever did this. We don't even have to know that it's Russia, but it was Russia, to attack that kind of civilian critical infrastructure. And what I heard from both administrations was, well, yeah, maybe, but you know, we want to be able to do that. We want to be able to turn off the power in war in the midst of a war. We want to be able to destroy the enemy's networks, you know, including civilians and governments' networks, not just military ones. So, I think of this almost like Lord of the Rings, where everyone is attracted to this power and their kind of um, attraction to that power, their power lust has made them blind to the danger that the power poses to them. And uh, no one wants to kind of constrain or destroy that power. They just want it for themselves. The new book by Andy Greenberg is Sandworm. Thank you for joining me, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for talking about it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.